to you by Drs. Sophia Mattingly and Jennifer Selwyn. Cap City Chalk Talk is a podcast by and for educators, past, present, and future, and anyone interested in the state of K-12 public education in the Sacramento area and beyond. Hello and welcome to episode two of Cap City Chalk Talk with Dr. Sophia Mattingly and Dr. Jennifer Selwyn. Today's episode will address the question, was 2020, 2021, a lost school year? In this episode, we'll speak with two local educators in the Sacramento area about the successes and challenges they each faced in teaching during the pandemic, about the lessons they learned along the way, and about the way forward for them and their students in the coming year. Well, this is a timely episode, Sophia and our guests, because as we all know, uh, there's been a lot of debate in the popular discourse and in the press recently about this question of learning loss in the 2020 and 2021 school year. And in fact, there was an article just yesterday in the New York Times entitled, The Pandemic Hurt These Students the Most, that reminded us that the pandemic only exacerbated uh, the inequities that we find based on socioeconomic status, on school funding in different districts, and and on the students who are most vulnerable uh, to losing ground uh, during a year which was predominantly at-home schooling. Interestingly, the article reports on a study that was funded by a a Northwest, uh, Portland, Oregon, actually, um, assessment company called the NWEA, and it was also conducted by the consulting firm McKinsey, McKinsey, which is a well-known national corporate uh, consulting firm. So we might ask ourselves the question of, you know, what agenda did those folks potentially have in uh, funding and conducting the study? But one of the things that, um, that I think is interesting for the study that we might want to talk a little bit about is this whole narrative that we've been hearing about, about learning loss. Not surprisingly, the study reminds us that those students who had been struggling the most uh, in terms of test scores prior to COVID uh, saw their growth in learning uh, hurt the most, according to the study anyway, uh, during the COVID year. And so in terms of measures on math growth uh, and in English growth during the pandemic, uh, the the study found that students did not have the same gains, particularly those who are from lower socioeconomic groups uh, and also racial minority groups, particularly uh, Latinx students and African-American students. Now, the article makes the case that these inequities existed before COVID, but clearly has an agenda that COVID uh, worsened the conditions. And it takes really until the last page or so of the article uh, for the author to admit that in fact, while the article may have been insinuating that there was learning loss going on in 2020, 2021, what was actually happening is that growth was not as great uh, during that year when many students' educations were disrupted. And that in fact, almost all students did make gains during the pandemic, just not the same gains that we might have expected had they been had it been a so-called normal year. 
Um, and a couple of the critics of this learning loss narrative that the article cites toward the end of the article remind us too that the picture is a lot more complicated and that perhaps we shouldn't jump to this conclusion that the learning loss narrative is, is absolutely everything we need to think about. For example, um, the article cites a, a professor at University of Washington College of Education, Anne Ishimaru, who reminds us that the problem with the learning loss narrative is that it's premised on a set of racialized assumptions and focused on test scores. Um, and she also pushes back about against the framing uh, of the pandemic's impact on children as quote, falling behind. Ishimaru goes on to tell us that many children learned plenty during the last year and a half, just not necessarily things that might have translated into test scores. Mm -hmm. For example, they learned about loss and grief, about racism and resistance about cooking and family traditions at home and so forth. And she ends her comments with a, with a quote that I think is worth considering for our conversation today. What if we were to focus on the learning found and then we rebuild our education system from that learning, right? So that rather than looking at learning loss, we might think about learning found. And the article goes on and talks about other issues related to this kind of larger um, series of questions about uh, inequities in education that we could hopefully address today and in future episodes. But I'd like to just ask us then to maybe begin by thinking about what this larger debate uh, around learning loss um, has to teach us and, and how, you know, those of you who are in the classrooms um, are looking at that whole question of learning loss as you think about the upcoming school year. So I think it's really interesting. And while you were talking about this article, as soon as you started mentioning information around the, the measurement of uh, growth, and the first question that came to my mind was, what was the measurement tool? What are we using here? How are they measuring this growth? How are they making decisions about uh, the learning and whether or not it was lost? Um, you know, when we're looking at math or reading, uh, is this, are we basing this on school testing? Like, what is, what is this? What are we, what are we, or we're only looking at certain factors. And I think that that's something, you know, that's really important about this article and even it's, it's criticism of itself there. In the end, um, looking at this idea of um, this deficit framing, right? That we're seeing this growing narrative of deficit framing of this last year and uh, sort of as our starting point for where we're headed already and how dangerous that can be in terms of setting kids up to feel like they're already behind, which is very overwhelming in particular for our secondary students um, uh, who are feeling a lot of pressure for college readiness and life readiness uh, to feel that they've lost this whole year. Um, but even more than that, like thinking about this idea of what is school? What is the purpose of school? You know, we have this very traditional factory style schooling and ideology of kids moving through at a particular pace and time um, where then, you know, they start at five and they're done at 18 and they're supposed to learn X, Y, Z each year um, and, and very uh, cleanly even, concisely. Um, and then it's, it's, we teach subjects and we only test subjects and we only measure growth and learning on subjects that are those core content areas, right? Three or four subjects. But yet we find that as teachers, we are often tasked with 
much larger teaching goals than just math, reading, science, social studies, right? Like there's character education, there's good, you know, citizenship, right? There's a million things um, that we're looking at doing. Um, and where is it that the growth, that's where the growth was. I mean, all those things that, that you mentioned. So um, just really kind of thinking about, about that and um, the role of the teacher in the classroom and how this sort of plays out. Um, if we, you know, that kind of begs this question of like, what larger lessons then has this COVID year imparted on us regarding these, these broader inequities that we saw in our society, um, you know, the dysfunctions of public education that might have been amplified during uh, this time period of the pandemic and uh, in particular with technology um, and how, how then do we use that to help create a classroom that is going to be um, more positive <laughs> for our students, more accessible for our students? Um, where, where is that, that switch from this deficit framing of we've lost learning to capitalizing and leveraging on the learning that was gained over the last year? So where, where is that connection? Um, so I think a great place to, to really start here is for our, um, our guests to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about who they are and what they do. Um, and then we can kind of jump into our, our discussion. Uh, so who'd like to go first? Hello, um, my name is Thea Torres Tusa. Um, I teach at Fairfield High School in Fairfield, California. So I'm a little bit outside of the Sacramento area, but I did do my student teaching um, at Highlands High School and at, oh, I don't even remember the name of that other school. Uh, was it? No, it was McClatchy. Oh, I was like, McClatchy. Yeah. I was like, I was like, where was I? I couldn't remember. <laughs> but I did a majority of my student teaching at Highlands in the Sacramento area and really grew to appreciate it. At Fairfield, however, I teach 10th grade English as of right now. That could always be subject to change any second, I feel like. But that's what I was told I'd be teaching this upcoming year is 10th grade English. And I graduated from Sac State. <laughs> okay. Um... My name is Kirill Lukinski. I also graduated from Sac State. I'm going into my fifth year as a teacher at Rosemont High School in the Sac City Unified School District. So I'm in the Sacramento area. Uh, before then, I student taught at four different schools. I'm a SDCDD teacher. That's my title at uh, in my district, which basically just boils down to I'm a mod severe instructional specialist. Um, at least that's what the, the, the California um, teaching credential would, would uh, point me as. Um, but yeah, I work with students with moderate to severe intellectual disabilities. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting ride this last year. Thank you for having me. Great, thank you. Um, so we're very fortunate to have such amazing students um, come out of Sac State and go into serving the greater community. Um, and uh, it's, it's really nice to, it's really nice to see how far and wide <laughs> they get to go. Um, great. So I think 
maybe uh, Kirill, you'd be a, a really, a, I'm really curious about, about this question with um, the special education population in particular, um, looking at already some of those existing structural um, uh, dysfunctions within education that your students and families and yourself as a teacher might encounter during uh, even just a, a regular in-person school year prior to the pandemic. Um, and how did you see those things change? Um, or what, what did you notice in this last school year? Uh, I don't know how much time we have for this. There's a <laughs> lot. Going into the pandemic, uh, March 13th for us in 2020 is when it when the school we had our last school day in person. Um, I guess this this is just to frame it. Uh, there were a lot of inequities in in our district. We have a lot of issues with um, with with the special education department. Um, it's and that's not it's not a surprise. We've had a lot of landmark cases that are in a lot of SPED law textbooks. Um, Rachel Holland, 1994, is one of them. Um, but going back to last year, we basically were on a on a silent period for about a month, and then we came back. Um, and as a case manager, we really didn't hear about what our job was in the pandemic, what we needed to do to manage our students until about mid-May. And my district gets out second week of June. Um, and I like to really be on top of my my caseload, um, know what needs to be in place. I Sped law scares me. <laughs> it is it is absolutely terrifying, and I want to be in compliance not only because it's the right thing to do, but also I don't want to be liable for anything. Um, so our district didn't have anything in place until mid-May, and I had two or three student IEPs that were um, had to be late, or I didn't uh, hold them. I had to talk families out of holding them. Um, which really wasn't a difficult sell because they didn't really want to hold them anyway. Nobody knew what was going on. Right. So that was, that was an issue that was kind of added on. Um, is that there was a lot of dysfunction of what we needed to do. There weren't any new laws about how we hold IEPs, what's compliance, what do we do in distance learning? How are we delivering minutes and services and things like that? And it was, it was a little bit more fleshed out in this past year. We had, you know, language we put into every, you know, note section and how we delivered um, services and things like that. But really, a lot of the issues stayed stayed the same um, and were compounded. I mean, you throw technology on top of it. If students didn't have access to internet for that day, then they weren't in class that day, right? Um, it was nice to have smaller groups and how our schedule was split up. There were some benefits to, to how distance learning function, especially with my students. A lot of my colleagues would look at me since I'm the only mod severe teacher on site and would go, Oh man, I don't know how you're doing it with your students because I, I apparently have the, the highest risk students that whenever these reports come out, like it's, I, I read that as, Oh yeah, they're, they're talking about my kids. Right. Um, but it was it was challenging. Um, it was a new set of challenges, but it it really did show how many issues we had before, and it just added on to that. And it it I'm hoping that we don't have to do that again, um, because it just kind of yeah it kind of rocked me last year to be honest. Okay, did you notice any um, similar type? 
uh, inequities between your students uh, who are receiving services as well? And how was that from like a student teacher perspective coming in and just learning about SPED law and, um, you know, trying to figure out how to write lesson plans, let alone modify lesson plans and, and to provide accommodations within a mainstream classroom setting. I find it so interesting that you brought up the Holland case. That's the case that I always think about um, when I'm planning lessons, especially if I have an IEP, because I just think about the inequities that, that her and her family had to fight. And I just like, it makes me sweaty. It like makes me really hot. Like I get like, I get upset about it. Um, so I didn't have any mod to severe um, students in my class. And but the IEP meetings that I was allowed to kind of sit in on, I think that I kind of had to be like, can I be here a lot? Cause I was a student teacher. I felt a lot as a guest, a lot of times in places, but one of the last few IEP meetings that I was in, I felt like um, they looked at me more as a teacher and they really wanted to know what I had to say. And there felt like the biggest inequality that I was like feeling with the same student, cause we had to keep rescheduling was literally just her access to, to internet just trying to get everyone to meet all at the same time in the in a distance learning space in a just socially distant space i think was the most difficult part and i'm trying to think of a, a a way to say this that's i the inequality was just this social economic kind of factor to it there wasn't um and i just there was this time where it felt like only the fellow teachers were like advocating for her like you can do this and then she was like i'm tired this has been a year and a half of me doing this and in they're just meeting like roadblock after roadblock and that's so frustrating it's like she just she needs to win every once in a while even if it's a small win these students still need to win and they are winning just i feel like it needed to be made like a really big deal that they all showed up to class like i would just be like oh my gosh you can't you guys we're all here and I would just do something fun like you know who wants to play music today and I would let students play music and or who has wants to do this like we would play games or just I don't know just something that's still fun but like we all got to be there to enjoy it because we all were there in class socially distanced <laughs> you know it's just it's difficult it was a very difficult year to be I think a student teacher, especially as their first year ever, like stepping into teaching, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, but it also, I think what you said, um, Kirill, was that you had smaller groups and that really helps um, me connect, I think, with students on a really individual level. Um, and that made everyone feel more on the same platform platform, same like level, we're all in the same playing field. Nothing's, nothing felt too out of anyone's reach because we all were accessing class in the same technology. And, but then it, it also kind of shed a lot of light on other people's inequalities in the classroom. So it was nice to feel like we were together and then we also got to empathize with each other in a lot of different ways, even though we all came from vastly different areas of education or um, different areas of our life. And I think being a part of the community was incredibly important as well. Um, I lived just right down the street from Highlands, and I think that made a really big difference. 
was my, they knew I was in the neighborhood. They knew I was in the same area as them. Same with my CT, um, Mr. Chambliss. He's like, I grew up here. I went to high school here. This is my town. This is my neighborhood. I love it here. And it's like, Seeing, having students feel that pride for the area, no matter where you are in Sacramento, in the Bay Area, feeling like you're a part of their community and students knowing you're a part of their community makes, I think, all the difference. It shows how much that they matter and their community matters and their neighborhood matters and their school matters. Does that answer the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> and I got one on a tangent. <laughs> There's not a correct answer, um, <laughs> but uh, you know th that's. I think you you know that that last piece about being part of the community in the neighborhood, and especially when we are kept from each other like we were this last year and a half. And one of the most comforting aspects, although it was also quite terrifying, was that the whole world was experiencing the same trauma together. Um, and so, you know, it helped us to not feel so alone in our isolation. Um, and even more than that, I think for your students, kind of what I'm hearing through that a little bit is that there was even another level of comfort of knowing that their teacher was experiencing this, the same in their very own community. So, um, you know, some, some people might be teaching outside their communities where like, let's say in Davis, where we had relatively low numbers, massive testing, you know, all of these things here. But if I, you know, um, had been teaching outside, if somebody was teaching outside, or maybe there were many more cases where, um, you know, they didn't have access to the, that same level of testing where there might've been greater stressors, um, that that's a different feeling, but you were feeling the same type of anxiety. You were, you know, going through the same communal trauma that your students were in that immediate area. Um, and that can be a very powerful way to feel connected to someone, even when you can't really be with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, that speaks to that larger building of relationships. I, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, that just reminded me of just how, because like the power went out and literally the whole neighborhood was out. And it was like this amazing, like there was this line divide of like who, whose power went out on this side of the neighborhood and whose didn't. And I was like, well, we all know it's true because the power is out for all of us. And it was one of those just kind of a really like fun experience still, even though it was something that wasn't positive initially, but we made it really fun and like just kind of made it a scavenger hunt day. Like if you were able to get your internet on or if you were able to connect to something, um, we made it a fun day. So there wasn't anything lost, just um, something to gain if you were able to be there. I think that's a great point. I mean, the power outages are just sort of more, more dramatic example. I think we've all faced those power outages at various times or, or internet outages. Um, and we, you know, this term resilience is thrown around. It becomes almost a cliche, but it seems to me that if we, you know, this lesson of resilience really is the thing that one thing that we can take with us, right, from this this past year. I wonder if if I could just follow up a little off script here on this whole question of resilience. I mean, in addition to kind of issues around access, the power, uh, internet access, um, even for those who had it, can you both think of maybe other examples of how resilience really enabled you to feel uh, as, a, as an educator that you were able to tap into, um, you know, really a deeper well of, uh, of commitment and of, of, of passion and of enthusiasm for what you were doing and how you might carry that resilience into 
the coming year if we are lucky enough to be back in the classroom full time. I mean, I felt uh, going into the last school year, I felt a lot of optimism um, despite despite issues between our union and our district with scheduling and figuring out. We didn't even have a contract, uh, an MOU put in place for distance learning going into the school year, um, which created, created a lot of chaos. We didn't even have schedules or times or anything. So that was, that was a huge, huge mess. Um, but I came into it with my head held pretty high because I knew um, that being my fourth year, I had a lot of students that I started with at Rosemont that were going into their senior years. Half my caseload, I had a caseload of 15 students. Um, half my students were with me when I started at Rosemont. So for me, it was it was a little bit of a bummer that we were gonna spend that last year together um, apart, but I also felt uh, a weight on me to try to make it the best year possible, to try to uplift and get their minds off of what was going on around us. Um, and also kind of do the same thing for myself. I tried to put all I could into my work to kind of just drown out the noise going, um, going on around us. So that, that worked really well. And I pushed for attendance and I pushed for, for students to show up. And for the most part, it worked out pretty well. It just, it was a very draining year, not to say it was a bad year, but it was a draining year. And if we had to do it again, I, um, I know there's things that I could do that would be better. Um, but I think I learned a lot about myself in the last year and that it pushed me to points where I didn't think I would get to this early in my career. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely feel, feel that wind picking up again. I'm looking at COVID cases spiking up again and I'm like, our, our school district doesn't start until early September and I'm wondering where we're going to be. I mean, I have a bargaining uh, with my union and my district in a couple of hours and we're negotiating what that's going to look like. So I'm just, yeah. It's, it's, uh, resilience is, is a good thing. <laughs> I guess I could just cap it off by saying that. Do you, do you mind, Carilla, if I, if I ask you, maybe if you can, if you, not to put you on the spot, but what was, you know, you mentioned some things you might do differently given what you now know. And so let's say that, you know, God forbid that the case, cases do rise and there's a need to go back to distance learning for at least some part of the coming school year. What, what would be maybe a couple of things that you learned from last year, um, and, and Theo will be asking you the same thing, that, um, that you would then try to build on or do differently in the coming year? I think one of the biggest things um, for, for me going into last year was, was my focus was getting students to be there, buying in mm -hmm. to showing up to classes, because if they're not there, then there's no learning going on. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways that I think I was able to have that happen wasn't I am pretty critical about myself and how how I teach um, for me it being in the classroom physically I have like my own domain and I, I control the variables um, I had to give up a lot of that control in distance learning you know I can't control whether a student's getting on the computer whether they're having internet issues um, whether they're logging in from their car and they're driving to San Diego with their family on vacation. Those are little bits that I had to give up and I had to be okay with instead of telling a student, oh, okay, well maybe don't do that anymore. Or maybe, you know, take, take it a little bit more seriously. Um, mm -hmm. Going forward, I think I would probably a little bit 
be a little more strict and be a little bit more rigorous with how I deliver instruction because part of me felt that if I pushed too hard, students were just going to tune me out. So it was kind of like this line I had to toe. Um, and my, my kids are super resilient and they, they've been with me for three years prior to that. And they know, they know me, I know them. Like I throw a lot at them. Um, and I just didn't feel like that was the time to just go back into how we were, you know, business as usual. So I kind of tur tune, uh, turned it down a little bit and I ramped it up as the school year went on. And um, I think as it wore on, I saw attendance drop a little bit here and there. Um, but for the most part, the buy-in was there. So if, if anything I could do better would, would be, you know, to maintain the rigor and increase it um, and try to keep the attendance up, not scare my students off. For me, I guess, um, with resilience, uh, my students are incredibly resilient as well and they did a great job um showing that they were more than capable of like being being successful my only um thing i guess i wish that i would have done differently is i noticed that at the beginning of the school year i was um just like really like on all the time like i was just like really enthusiastic like really um just, I could feel my passion like, for whatever I was teaching, showing to my students and they would get really excited and have questions too. Or they'd be like, oh, well, let's go back and talk about what you said earlier that we didn't have time for. Or, and they were getting, you could feel how involved they were getting in the conversation. Um, and like the discussions about politics, um, economics. And it was like, this is just the most socially and like politically driven generation I've ever like seen and they were just so educated in a way that I never was at 15 or 16 I was just very like taken aback by that I really wish I would have pushed more on that I wish I would have uh honed in on that more and I wish I would have really kept my energy up the whole year I think um I got a little burned out in the first semester um and then second semester I like revamped up but I I feel like I almost did like a disservice by like going like, okay, and like letting the students kind of like dis decide in a way like what we were doing, like what they were okay with. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have just again kept that like rigor up of like how excited I was. Um, I think that would have helped kind of let the students feed off my energy because that energy, even if we're socially distanced, is still there and people feel what you're feeling, I think, no matter where you are. And especially in our, in our conversation right now, you know, I feel like we're all feeding off each other's energy. And I just think that students are looking to the adult in the, in the classroom to gauge and to tell them what the energy is going to be that day and what we should be excited for and what we're going to laugh about and what we're going to do. I'm a big believer about laughter as well. I think laughing in the class is really important. And I think bringing comedy or art into things as much as possible is just incredibly important for children of all ages. <laughs> so um, I wish I would have kept my energy up more successfully. <laughs> so I, I have a follow-up to that and a comment, but I just want to point out um, how apropos it is that I need to let Jennifer here back into our meeting because her power went out. <laughs> <laughs> and she got kicked out. So she's coming back in here. Um, 
but there are a couple things that came up there that I think is really interesting. Um, you know, they, you're talking about, you know, the energy level, right? And keeping that energy level up. And this is something that, you know, one of the first things and one of the reasons why we talked about wanting to do this podcast was centered around uh, teacher trauma and, uh, and how that plays out in, in our job and what that looks like in the classroom, like how we collect trauma year after year. You know, we bring it, we have our, our own just as humans. And then, um, you know, we absorb students' trauma as well, much like therapists might um, in, in like a clinical setting. And that carries with us. But in this particular situation of the pandemic, right, I mean, we do have this collective trauma, but we are each individually still facing our own unique situations with maybe family members who have um, become ill or just worry and anxieties about becoming ill or, you know, however that's happening. And, you know, you talk about your energy level of, you know, seeing that dip and that dip coincided with this massive surge of cases that we saw where we were at this very heightened um, state. So, um, you know, how do we take care of ourselves as teachers? So, you know, what, what can we do as teachers to uh, maintain our mental health, right? How do we take care of us to continue to be able to have the energy level that, that we're talking about, to, um, to be able to speak with the passion, um, for that to be able to come through and and uh, engage and inspire our students. So I, I'm curious uh, about a couple of things that came up and, and, that, and that's one of them. So, you know, what was in place for you as teachers uh, for support um, for your mental health, for your physical health that you, that you saw with, with your school community um, or district? And, and also thinking about, you know, Carilla, you brought up this idea of, you know, business as usual. And, and I think that that might be like a default, right? Like to go back to that. So if we have things in place and this resiliency of, of students and, um, you know, and then we default back to this business as usual, is that a disservice to our students and to ourselves as teachers? So these are kind of the questions that, that are brewing in my head right now. Uh, my district had had a lot of supports for for students and families when it came to like mental health services. They had um, Zooms that you can join. They had hotlines that they established. Um, our counselors were really good about reaching out. Um, for for staff, I had uh, I mean la last year was was just a roller coaster. Um, keeping keeping up that energy throughout the year was really difficult. And I, I felt the exact same way when the beginning of the year, I came in with a lot of like, with a lot of zest and I was, you know, gung ho. Um, and it started to kind of wear on me. Um, for me personally, I was pretty strict. My fiance and I were pretty strict about staying at home and following all those and, and not seeing anybody, um, family members included. So we were, we were locked down and uh, the holidays were particularly rough, especially when the cases were spiking. And that's when, I think uh, for me mentally, that was that was the toughest time where it was like, you know, I'm not able to see family, um, not able to see friends, haven't seen them in a long time. Um, and then coinciding with that, my students were feeling the exact same way. So it was kind of just like, how do you go into um, go into work and you're trying to kind of like fake it 
and 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 bring everybody up when you're feeling this way and and i would do a pretty good job of it to try to keep up the energy but it's really really challenging um really challenging to do that um but i i was in an iep meeting that i was holding i think it was in january and my administrator who was who was in the meeting with me she sent me an email after and just said you seem you seem off you don't seem like yourself and i uh i responded and i'm like you know i'm not i'm not doing too hot right now um you know just full full disclosure i'm not doing too great and i kind of spelled out some of the things that i was feeling i was feeling kind of a burnout i know in sped they they tell you there's a three to five year burnout which i always scoffed at um because the first first three years i was like all right i could do this you know i got this but um the last two years were, were pretty challenging um so she she responds back and then later i get a call from my principal i'm i'm sitting down a meeting dinner i'm watching tv and uh i have a pretty close relationship with her and i hadn't talked to her much that school year so she she kind of knew where i was she was the person who brought me into my school i know i knew her prior uh before i started working at rosemont and she you know took the time to listen um i opened up she gave me really, really good advice. And that kind of like recharged me to finish out the year. Um, but having, having that kind of a support system at, at work was super important. I had a lot of colleagues that I would keep in touch with. Um, I did credit recovery where I had colleagues that we, we did office hours together. So it was three of us. And if students weren't there, we would just talk about our day and just kind of, you know, vent. Um, having your boss that you're able to talk to so openly about things was was awesome and then having a support system at home too you know i had my fiance i could call my you know i could call my mom and and talk to her about this stuff so it it was it was good being able to have people that you could talk to and then it kind of kept me going so when students had those same issues and they needed someone to talk to and they wanted to talk to me i could do the same for them and support systems are super important mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, um, having been a K-12 teacher also, like that's one of the things that I think is really unique about that, um, about that experience is that we rely so much on each other for support, uh, you, you know, with that shared experience, um, kind of like uh, having a platoon, <laughs> being part of a, a platoon in a sense, um, where you know, really, it feels oftentimes like the only other people that fully understand what what we uh, experience are the people experiencing it with us. Um, and, and I was wondering, too, like if that was an added challenge then of being so separate from each other where you you can't, you know, come together when you normally would, you know, you can't sit together at the faculty meeting, you can't, you know, there aren't this in the hallway and plan time where you can debrief and uh, look for um, ideas about, you know, hey, I've got some students are having these tech problems, or I've noticed that this group of students are struggling, you know, do you have any ideas, go watch another, another teacher do something, um, and then come and use that in your classroom, or even like from a SPED standpoint of being able to push into a class um, as, as easily or to work together to, to do something. Yeah, it was challenging, um, especially that that push in piece at the beginning of the year, I would normally, you know, sit down with the teachers individually and talk about what students are going to be there, what kind of services that they have, what kind of supports they need. 
Um, I'd bring in my instructional aides in with them uh, to, to kind of, you know, just coach everybody up on, on how it's going to, going to look and not being able to do that, not being able to just uh, chop it up with a coworker during a passing period or, you know, sit, sit next to somebody during um, staff meetings. Like you would have the text messages or the chats going on during, during the staff meetings, but it wasn't the same or, you know, grabbing a drink after work after a really difficult day or having like, you know, open house or something like that. And then staff going out afterwards and just kind of debriefing, like not having that general camaraderie was really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, when we came back in person in, uh, late April, it, it felt like it was just a second wind because everybody was really happy to see each other. You got to see your coworkers, you got to see students. It, it kind of carried us through the last leg of the school year, which was really nice and really reminded us what we were, we were missing out on. Um, there were parts, and not to, not to disparage distance learning, um, there were parts of it that I really did enjoy, but having teaching is such a personal thing where it, it's, it's really difficult to do it for a long period of time um, over technology. Like, I feel like you have to, you have to have that face-to-face -face interaction to, for it to, for it to be as meaningful as it can be. Mm -hmm. I think that's that exactly what you're saying is this being what I was, I think you're saying it better than I was saying it earlier too, being online and distance learning. It was, it took more energy to be on like camera. It was like, it was like you were acting constantly. You were constantly on as an actor and not as a teacher. And in person, when I did get the opportunity to finally teach in smaller groups in person, I felt a little bit more relaxed. And I remember feeling like, oh, and it just wasn't as draining in that same regard. Um, I was still excited and had my energy up, but it was still that, um, it was very, you know, back and forth. And then I really wanted to touch back on the like, camaraderie that you were talking about too. I, you know, my first experience with teaching was distance learning. And when I did get the opportunity to finally be in person, um, that was probably the first thing that my CT like said to me, he was like, he's like, I don't, you know, I don't mean this in any type of way. He's like, but no one's going to understand what this is like, except for like your fellow teachers. And he was like, there's going to be days he's like when you want to talk to your husband, but he is just not going to get it. He was like, I love my wife so much. He's like, but she does not understand what I'm talking about and how deeply like affecting like some of these things can be to us. He's like, and it's heartbreaking. And he's like, and sometimes you need another teacher to empathize and hear what you're going through because they're going through it too. And he's like, because we all care so much it's hard to see students struggle. It's hard to see them need something and we can't give it to them um, in that way because we love them so much, but there's just no, um, there's boundaries that we definitely cannot cross. And he's like, that's a really difficult thing to deal with as a career in education. And I thought that was just really great advice. And um, I just, I think that's something that's really gonna stick out to me like forever in like this really weird way is that it means it means a lot to care about your students it's a privilege it's also um something that can be very heartbreaking too yeah that's that's that was a challenge too especially last year because it's like when do you what what where, where do you draw the line where do you draw the boundaries because 
if you were at home most of the school year, work was home, where do you cut it off, right? Um, for me, I'm someone who used to, not anymore, because this past year I needed to figure out how to draw those lines to just protect protect myself. Um, because if I'm not coming in uh, in any any sort of good mental standing, then what what good is that going to be for for my students? At least I see I need to come in fresh. Um, but I would answer emails at all hours. Um, I did seventh period, so I would be at school from you know seven o'clock to four o'clock. And then I'd come home and if someone called me work related, I would answer it. I would send an email back, but I took my work email off of my phone. Um, I'm setting up those boundaries because in this, in the past year, it was just, I'm, I'm at the same computer where I would, you know, spend time with my friends and play video games. And I worked here a couple hours prior, like it just all blended in. And it was like, it was, it was, it was really difficult to, to kind of set up those finite boundaries. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate the, these two topics that just came up in both of your comments about, you know, setting boundaries and the difficulties of kind of letting the job and the, you know, the demands of the job become a 24 seven kind of preoccupation that was that was in, in exacerbated with COVID in terms of us working at home and living at home and having family time at home and all of the things that we were doing in the same place. Um, but also, Thea, what you were talking about in terms of the huge change that came once you were able to actually be with your students in physical space and with your new colleagues in physical space. And just to say, you know, having both Sophia and I having taught K through 12 and now teaching college, I think I, I can speak for Sophia, but I, I certainly know that that those are things that that I certainly relate to as a college lecturer as well. And that the lack of physical contact with students and the lack of feedback. I think what Thea, what you know, what you were kind of commenting on reminded me that there's just so much less feedback from students in, on, on Zoom. And Zoom is its own sort of bizarre, um, you know, visual experience. Um, and, and, and you talked about performing. And I think when teaching becomes so much about just performing, which is, is hard to get away from in, in the distance learning, at least synchronous distance learning. Um, but when you're lacking that feedback from students and that physical proximity to students and colleagues, I think it really does diminish what teaching is about. Um, makes it much more alienating, at least in my experience. Um, but I just wanted to kind of tag on and, 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 and ask you a little more, Thea, about the specificity of the student teaching experience uh, being spent predominantly online and then and, and then how it changes when you actually were physically in proximity to your um, supervising instructor because um, I think student teaching is so challenging and and stressful anyway and exciting but also really uh, terrifying as I recall it um, so what I'm wondering what what your thoughts are on what lessons you took out of that student teaching experience in particular um, during last year? Well, thankfully, I had Dr. Mattingly as my supervisor, and she was a very big advocate for me and my education in this whole process. And I felt like I always had someone like on my team and like on my side, and that helped a lot for me to be an advocate for my own education too, and to be like, okay, like I'm paying to be here, like. I want to learn. I want to do the best I can. And I 
how can we do that then? And I felt like it pushed me to be more of an advocate for myself, knowing that I have Dr. Mattingly like on my side and like, you know, she was my own advocate and I was like, okay, I can do this. Um, lesson wise though, I think that my, I, I think I even wrote this in the little Google form that we did too. My biggest lesson that I took away was, um, I realized something, I guess, that I really disliked um, is when adults, um, in particular as adults in the room, we minimize um, children, students, anyone that's not 18, we minimize their experiences and we minimize their feelings and their emotions to be like, well, you don't know any better because you're just young and you haven't actually experienced the world. And I'm that just struck a chord with me for some reason. And it really bothered me hearing these very educated like adults like saying this to students all over the world like not just at not saying that's is my school site or anything like that but it was just this really profound like communicative like experience that all these other students everyone's experiencing and I remember hearing that myself as in high school that well you haven't experienced life yet so you don't know you actually don't know what's going on telling students they don't know is baffling to me um, because I, looking back on my life, I'm almost 30 and looking back on my life so far, I experienced more by the time I was 16 than I have the whole rest of my life. These students, these kids are experiencing the world so quickly and they know so much. And it's so insane to me to try and minimize how just, their, how big their grasp on the actual world is and reality is. Um, I think that we do that maybe to feel like we are in control or maybe like to have, maybe there's like a power struggle going on, but I really felt this need to constantly like check myself in the way of being like, I am not, I, I think that, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I had to like be like, that's and that's okay. If I was the smartest person in the room, then I'm in the wrong room. So that's kind of how I always felt. And I just really wanted my students to like, to like educate me in a way. Like I really like to give my students the like, the floor a lot and to guide the conversation. And sometimes that means we did not finish the lesson. And sometimes that meant we did not get to where I wanted to, but we really focused on deepening our understanding and deepening our knowledge on a certain subject. And that included talking about personal experiences and personal narratives and to never minimize any one single student's experience. And that also went with me having to make sure other students were like, hey, like this is like a super safe space and this student voiced something and we're all gonna listen and we're all gonna like see how that made us feel. We're all gonna talk about it. It's not just anyone's responsibility to try and like check another person in this room. We are all here to learn. And I think by setting that really strict like standard, like immediately, I think really helped. And I felt really um, like I had a lot of backup doing that. I felt like a lot of support from not only Dr. Mattingly, but my CT as well. I felt a lot of like, yep, this is how she's running the class. This is what we're doing. And I think that it Earned, it like earned my students respect as opposed to demanding it and making myself the adult in the room. Um, it just made me a, a peer in a way, but still a peer that was leading the conversation and making sure we were all being safe.
in our discussions. <laughs> That's really heartening. And I think that, um, you know, that kind of speaks to this article that I opened us up with um, discussing, uh, giving a synthesis of in the New York Times. And, you know, sometimes when you take the time to dive deeper into a topic and you take the time to really understand the personal dimensions of all of your students and how they relate to those topics, that does slow things down. And so the so-called progress that maybe the state expects or that the testing evaluates, uh, you know, can't measure that. But, you know, one of our goals in this podcast is to really think about the liberatory potential for education. And I think you're speaking to that right here, as Kirill has done as well, um, in terms of, you know, seeing your students as human beings and understanding the challenges that they're facing, as well as also taking the time to address your own uh, trauma and your own um, sense of, of challenge uh, from the difficulties that we've all been facing. And that's something too that uh, I keep seeing come up time and time again in these discussions around, you know, the this idea of um, lost learning, right? Like it's very uh, specific content focused. And one of the one of the counters to that that keeps coming up is thinking about moving forward and how do we take this, you know, when we, so like where Jennifer started with the, this discussion of the New York Times article and discussing, you know, and, and like we've discussed here today with the exposed inequalities in, in education and how that sort of widened this, this gap that we were already seeing um, and thinking about, okay, so what do, how do we move forward? Because I think that's sort of the question that's on everyone's mind right now. And as we're planning for the next year, it can't help be part of what's driving our lesson plan, unit design, pacing guide, like whatever it is that we're doing, whatever curriculum pedagogical decisions we're trying to make, you know, that's behind it is how do we move forward? And, uh, and, and when I'm not sure how we're moving forward at the same time, like we don't really know what the beginning of the year is going to look like. We've been told, but we also know that cases are rising again and that could really change. And at least now I think we're in a, in a slightly better position because we have some experience with what that looks like and we've learned some lessons and we're better at troubleshooting tech than we ever thought we were going to be. Um, <laughs> but you know, so we we're in a little bit better position than the scramble that we were in, say, in spring of 2020. But um, you know, there's a there's a lot here, and one of the the biggest things that I keep seeing, and and, and as educators, uh, you know, we talk about a lot is the power of you know experiential learning, the power of um, progress that are um, of things that are designed around student interest and that are more student-led class classroom activities that are like project-based that are um, less focused on grades and um, hard deadlines and more about over time growth that are looking at um, mastery right and and so i think you know, that might be one of those things that has been highlighted here again, um, that when we look at the learning that happened over this last year and we want to measure it against some conventional uh, standards of how did they perform on this particular um, test, this that measures English, um, math, you know, maybe 
maybe what we're seeing is is that there are some you know that there is less growth than we saw in years past but if we were looking at this in terms of mastery what might we see would that be the same picture if we were measuring our learning outcomes by a different yardstick um, that was that was really looking at some of these things and and just in listening to you guys talk i wrote down just some some things because i just wrote at the top like i started hearing stuff and then finally i was like well, okay what did we gain like what did we learn and in hearing from two teachers in the area this is this is what i heard you said we learned we gained resilience Right, so we're much more resilient than we were. And I, I agree with Jennifer about the kind of played out whatever of resiliency. And the, actually I think the biggest bummer resiliency is that it means that you've endured trauma. Um, but it's also a sur survival tool. And uh, as much as it's become a buzzword, it's still really important and it has value. So uh, to, to be able to develop that. And we didn't just develop this resiliency in isolation of something that was just affecting individuals, but it was like a collective resiliency. And, and it wasn't just students, it was teachers. So as teachers, we became resilient within our own field. We learned that we could be pushed outside those boundaries and we could rise to and uh, above what was what we thought we were going to need to do. I mean, just as a professional development exercise, it was incredible. Stressful, but <laughs> it was really quite incredible. Um, we learned flexibility. We gained flexibility during this last year uh, about, um, you know, what is a win? Right, so normally a win is when everybody comes and they sits in the class and there's, I don't have to, you know, redirect anyone and whatever, but a win became you're here. That was a win. And, and it was an important one because not everybody got to be there. So we lost a lot of people this last year. So just being there in itself is a win. Um, we gained a lot of tech skills. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, having lost my mother-in-law to COVID, it was hard. Um, we gained a lot of tech skills and things that we thought we probably were never going to have to do. Some we hope we never have to do again. Um, but we learned how to communicate with and, and help students get access when their power was out. Um, we learned uh, a, a deeper empathy for uh, each other and ourselves that maybe we never had before. Um, you know, it might have always been there as educators, typically it's there. Uh, it's what helps us to be able to do this <laughs> on the salaries <laughs> we have. But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I think that that hit a whole new level of empathy. Um, you know, what other people describe as being soft skills, right? Like that we, we have that, just ample amounts. Um, and then I, I heard that we that we gained this ability to be okay with giving up control. And that is so hard. I don't know that I've ever met a teacher that isn't type A. So <laughs> I don't know that they exist. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Someone will probably correct me on this, but I don't know them. Um, <laughs> 
but it's really hard, right? It's really hard to say it's okay that you are doing this work from a car hotspot <laughs> on your way to something that your parents are doing. Um, you know, and that's, we had to give up a lot of control. We had to give up a lot about our ideas of what teaching and learning looked like. And we had to um, reimagine what, what that could really be. And, um, and then like the, the last thing that, that I've heard is that we really gained this ability um, and this just deeper level of appreciation for each other. So that was kind of what I, what I was hearing about, you know, we've, we've discussed some of these challenges and, and some of the things that, you know, were, were difficult in some, some ways where we feel like, you know, oh, this wasn't as good. But within that, I was hearing so many beautiful things about teaching and learning that were happening for our students and ourselves. These are all things that, um, that I saw in that discussion. Wonderful. I, I echo everything you said, Sophia, and I just want to ask Kirill and Thea if you have anything you wanted to add as we wind up. Not, not particularly, but I just, I really wanted to say thank you, Dr. Salin, and thank you, Dr. Mattingly, for inviting me, and, and I'm sure Kirill, too. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thank thank you. Thank you for having us. This was a really, really good discussion. If if anything, my only plug um, for being for being a new teacher, I would really, really push um, being active in your union. <laughs> I my my district's super contentious. Um, and it it's kind of a reactive thing that our union needs to be strong. But wherever you end up going, just 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 be active in your union. I became a site rep this past year. I'm on the negotiating team. So just being being active, being an extra voice, not only for um, for the community, but also for your peers, it it it's it's pretty pretty good. It it makes you it feels it feels more uh, I guess for me it feels liberating. So being active in your union, knowing what's going on with with district issues and policies, attend some board meetings. That's all I would recommend. <laughs> Thank you. So there are some, some kind of just general strategies and ideas that have come out of a lot of the discussions that are going on. Um, as you can imagine, this, this really is a hot topic right now. Everybody's sort of talking about this and thinking about, um, you know, what, what do we do? How do we uh, move forward? And uh, there are several um, strategies and recommendations or things that, that are out there that are being talked about amongst researchers and teachers and classrooms. And so I'm just going to share uh, a few of those um, with you guys and with anyone else who may be listening uh, to uh, that you might want to incorporate into your teaching. Um, so just the idea, right, that one size does not fit all. And this is by means not a new concept really um, in education or in life for that matter, especially when we think about right special education in particular is highly individualized with those uh, individualized education plans and 504 documents um, that outline the accommodations and modifications that students will need to be successful in the classroom or that can really help them with or meet their learning goals. Um, and but what we find is like all students really, uh, you know, require this 
specific instruction that's tailored for them. In a classroom of 30-something students, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to be able to provide that. Um, but just that flexibility of um, thinking that not everybody has to be in the same place at the same time doing the same exact thing to be able to learn the concept that we're after. Um, and to, to allow that, that freedom of, um, of experience for, your, uh, um, for the learning of your students and also for your own teaching. Um, the importance, too, of relationships and connections, and that this is incredibly important and one of the foundations of education. Um, I, I know that one of the single biggest determiners of my children's success in their school year is whether or not they think their teachers like them. So it's not usually how good they think they are at the subject or how much they like a subject. It is at the very core of that if they think their teachers like them. So um, that's, you know, those relationships are really important and thinking about in particular coming into this next year, like really building that triad, that teacher, caregiver, student triad. Um, and something that we need to consider too <clears throat> is nationwide, there's roughly about 110,000 students that are returning to classrooms that lost a parent to COVID in this last year. Um, so this is, uh, you know, we typically during your school, your teaching career, you will have some students who will lose a parent. Um, I think if this is going to be on a very different scale where um, we're going to have several students who are dealing with, with grief that, um, that we're going to need to really building those relationships is going to be hugely impactful in supporting our students, both educational needs as well as their academic needs. Um, thinking about and keeping in mind inclusivity when you're designing those lesson plans and kind of reminding yourself about technology. And I think uh, I've heard this from a lot of teachers and I've read this in a few places. And I can honestly say personally that this was a big aha for me as well this year. And, and I would think, and I'm kind of hearing the same thing for, for you guys too, is technology and how prior to this, how easy it was to say, oh, type this up or look this up or give an assignment that required some type of technological access. Um, but also just understanding of how to utilize resources. So um, it didn't just mean you need to have internet access, but you also needed to understand how to search for things, how to um, go through and identify what is a good source and what's not. Um, so thinking about that inclusivity, designing those lesson plans, who was most impacted in your student population? Where did you, where did you see um, students that had uh, the largest obstacles or faced the biggest challenges? And what types of ways can we help support that then when we're building those lessons that might require things, things like tech? And that was just one example um, that should be applied to anything. Um, so, uh, this idea of maybe focus more on mastery and less on grades, uh, provide more feedback on and, and fewer assignments, maybe scaffold assignments, building, you know, things over time instead of uh, a lot. And this was came from a lot of teacher feedback around the grading just became very overwhelming. And this was this moment of 
really having to stop and think about what is meaningful and what is not. What is helping us get to this point? And, um, you know, does this class really need to have a thousand points in it? <laughs> is that something, um, what does that really mean? Does a thousand points equal learning? Can we also equate, you know, can we have that with a hundred points? Um, and what are points, right? <laughs> so uh, what are some other ways that we could be looking at measuring learning? Um, and then uh, other meaningful ways that we can utilize the technology for this digital generation too. Uh, some of your students were probably incredibly tech savvy and you were asking them, how did you get your thing to do the whatever? Um, and also just that we've been given this extra tool, like think about our ability to teach in an online space as just one more tool that we have. Um, things like pre-recorded content or even recording just your class, even if you were in person and making that available for students who may be absent. Because um, even if we can go back in person, we're still going to have cases probably for who knows how long. And we may have students that are out for a few days and who may, may need that. Um, you know, thinking about how difficult it is for your students to miss a day of school like what they miss in a day of school. And if they could watch that class that happened, you know, um, that that could really help them uh, in a time when they are, are already feeling a little anxious about um, maybe missing some material or, or whatever, that um, that could help ease, ease that. So those were some strategies and ideas that uh, I've seen in some of the, the literature and also um, that we've gathered from other teachers too that might be helpful. I'd love to call that my fast five if I didn't talk so much, but here we are. <laughs> All right, is this a good time to thank everybody for joining us and um, look forward to carrying on the conversations and hopefully wishing you both a fantastic school year ahead, whatever it may bring. Um, and uh, stay tuned for Thanks. our listeners to our next episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for being here. Really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Thank you yeah. for inviting us. This was a very unique experience and I'm glad we got to share it. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Hey, have a good day. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Take care. Take care.